Chapter 5 of The Romance of Excavation by David Masters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Stephen Seidel. In Chapter 5, we learn about graves which make history and the great age of Egyptian civilization, about mud that tells a story, about the first king of Egypt, and about the romance of the tombs. The Book of the Dead is found to contain some of the Christian commandments. The ancient scribes who prepared it are shown to have engaged in a kind of sleight of hand. Gradually, the romance of ancient Egypt is being revealed by the graves of those who died in remote times. Yet to read the romance at first hand requires an exceptional ability that is possessed by only a few men. Little bits of evidence of no importance to the casual onlooker are fraught with immense importance to the scientific seeker. The most wonderful tombs in the world are to be found in Egypt in the shape of the pyramids, and as the centuries recede, the tombs gradually become simpler until they arrive back at the simplest of all, just a shallow hole scooped out of the ground in which the dead man rests on a skin. Consequently, the graves of Egypt reveal the rise of Egypt's civilizations. They indicate how man's ideas have changed, how primitive customs have slowly passed away and given rise to the most remarkable practices connected with the dead of which we have any trace. The later stone tombs needed no seeking. They were plain to every traveler who journeyed up the Nile. Earlier tombs built of brick were found, revealing a more ancient state of civilization when men were ignorant of the ways of working stone or found it too difficult to devote their energies to shaping stone to be built into a tomb. Going back and back, the brick tombs get smaller and smaller until they disappear, and only the grave remains in which the dead lie doubled up. These were the things that years of work taught, but the earliest graves of all long eluded the eyes of modern workers. One day, Professor Flinders Petrie came across remains, the greatest care was exercised in digging, so that every shred of evidence could be collected, and as the sand and soil were drawn aside, he saw it was a very ancient grave, older than anything ever dreamed of in connection with Egypt. No one had any idea that Egypt was inhabited so long ago, but here was proof that men lived in the Nile Valley in the dark ages of time. The evidence goes to show that a crude civilization existed there 10,000 years ago, and that men may have lived in the Nile Valley over 20,000 years ago. Whether any relics will ever be found to throw any light on this epoch of Egyptian history remains to be seen, but it would not be astonishing if something did eventually appear, for the country has powers of preservation which even today are only faintly recognized, and the earth can hide things so cunningly that human beings may search for centuries and never find them again. The fact that they are not found is no proof that they never existed. When this ancient man hunted on the banks of the Nile, he gazed upon a very different land from that which exists today. The river was wider and shallower. It overflowed its banks for greater distances. The banks of gravel which show where the waters of the river lapped in bygone centuries still exist, but they are far removed from the river and a hundred feet or so higher. In all the thousands of years that have elapsed since then, the Nile has been cutting a deeper and deeper channel for itself. 
in all the years that it has been bringing down the mud and solution flowing over the land some of the mud has sunk to the bottom and remained much of it has been carried from the delta to the sea the mud that sank has got deeper and deeper the river has added to the deposit inch by inch until there is now a wonderful layer of alluvial soil just the mud of the nile between thirty and forty feet thick on each side of the stream this deposit itself has helped give scientists an idea of the age of the earliest human remains that have been found the rate at which the river leaves the mud behind has been carefully measured and men have learned that in a century the nile will add four inches of soil to the fields by flooding test holes have revealed the present depth of the alluvium if roughly about a yard of deposition is allowed for one thousand years and about ten or twelve yards are allowed for the total depth then the age of the deposit is fixed at ten or twelve thousand years in some quarters this time is considered as absolutely accurate and definitely fixed but there are so many factors to be taken into account that we should hesitate to regard them as unalterable the Nile, it is true, has been depositing mud at the rate of four inches to the century in modern times. But this is no proof that it has always deposited mud at this rate, and there may have been considerable changes in the rate at which the mud banks have grown on each side of the stream. We know the floods vary considerably, and the rate of deposition must similarly vary. There seems at least the possibility that it took twice as long as the accepted estimate to deposit this mud on each side of the river that is twenty thousand years for aught we know it may have taken two hundred thousand years it will be seen how difficult it is in dealing with the lapse of such ages to mention any definite dates this is why men who are digging up the past in egypt refer to dynasties starting with the first dynasty and working up to the last or thirtieth dynasty a great deal has been done toward discovering the names of the various kings in the different dynasties, but there are still many gaps to fill in. Most of our information in this respect has been given us by a list of names compiled by a priest named Manetho, who lived about 2,100 years ago. Manetho undoubtedly based his names of kings on more ancient lists which have totally disappeared but that he was fairly accurate is borne out by the Turin papyrus, so far as it has been translated. The difficulty with this papyrus is that it was discovered in a number of fragments, and some of the parts of it are missing. However, the parts that remain have been most carefully pieced together, and seem to verify Manetho's list, which starts with Menes, who is looked upon as the first king of the first dynasty, and is thought to have reigned about seven thousand years ago throughout the ages that followed the reign of menes there grew up those religious beliefs and quaint burial customs which have done so much to unfold to us the life of the past at first sight there seems to be no reason for all the statues the tiny figures and wonderful wall inscriptions to be found in the ancient tombs of egypt it seems incomprehensible that the dead should be buried with food and flowers beside them that all this artistic talent should be wasted in this manner yet some such customs exist in all lands and survive to this day for we still place wreaths of flowers upon the graves of our departed in memory of them 
but actually the giving of a wreath is based on a custom that recedes so far back that all trace of it has been lost the egyptians believed that there was another world to which the soul journeyed after death but the journey was long and hazardous and the soul faced many perils on the way in order to protect the soul from danger the egyptians used to paint an image of the sun god within the tomb thus placing the soul directly under the protection of the god and the soul would wander over the heavens in the company of the god immune from all harm so long as the daylight lasted directly darkness fell all the evil spirits would come forth from their retreats and try to trap the soul as it stumbled blindly through the labyrinths of the lower regions all night the soul would fight against these perils struggling continually toward the dawn then as the sun came up the soul would escape from the evil demons and wander free of danger through the heavens once more until darkness fell every human being was also considered to possess a perfect duplicate a double and the egyptians were taught that the life of this double depended on the survival of the body and if the double had no body to return to the double would become extinct and die for good such a thing was too terrible to contemplate and had it happened it would have signified eternal disgrace to the living as well as obliteration to the dead consequently the body was embalmed so that it would be preserved for all time as a place of refuge for the double there was the risk however that despite all precautions something might happen to the embalmed body that it might be destroyed by some accident quite unforeseen and unforeseeable the egyptians must have considered this danger long and earnestly before they arrived at a method of averting it the method was simplicity itself what could serve the purpose better than a statue of the deceased if the mummy became damaged there was always the likeness in stone for the double to inhabit then somebody decided that two statues would provide two chances for the double to survive in case of accident to the mummy once this idea was fully established the number of statues multiplied until there were a dozen or more all the same carved in stone to represent the dead man to avoid the possibility of the double making any mistake the likeness of the dead man was portrayed this accounts for the finding of so many statues of kings each statue gave the king a chance in the afterlife to provide sustenance for the double before it reached the egyptian equivalent of paradise jars of water meat and bread were buried with the mummy it would not do for the dead to go hungry theoretically the foodstuffs should have been replenished from time to time and no doubt for long this was done but the egyptians finally found that it was difficult enough to provide for the living without toiling to feed the dead there is no doubt that the offerings to the dead became somewhat of a drain on the resources of these ancient nile dwellers so again they solved the problem in quite a simple way if they painted all the offerings on the walls of the tomb and prayed to the gods to provide the departed with the things needed in the afterworld such painted offerings would last forever and relieve the living of the demands on their foodstuffs consequently all over the tombs these pictures of offerings may be found to serve the deceased if he should need food during his wanderings to the egyptian paradise the little images known as ushabti 
were placed in the tomb in case the deceased was called upon to work in the next world. They were his servants, who would labor for him and save their master from performing menial tasks. The boats or barges that are found were to ferry the dead man over the sacred waters to the fields of the blessed. The Egyptians, indeed, considered that everything required in this life would be needed in the next. It is well for us that they had these ideas, for they have resulted in many remarkable relics being found in the tombs, relics which helped the scientists to reconstruct the life of these wonderful ancients, to revive the romance of their lost civilization. In order that the dead man might not lose his identity, his name was graven within the tomb, and in time the outstanding features of his life were also mentioned, so that the god should be conversant with all he had done. Some of these notes are short, others long, but all of them are of importance as showing us what happened while the dead man was alive. We have our own national biography printed on paper and carefully bound to place on our shelves, but the national biography of ancient Egypt is carved upon mountains of stones in the tombs of the land. These are the books of the distant past, but there is the possibility that they will survive when many of our modern books have perished utterly from the earth. The commonest of all the ancient manuscripts that have survived to our day is the well-known Book of the Dead. It is another relic which serves to indicate the thought devoted by the Egyptians to life in the next world. The Book of the Dead is a sacred book which tells the dead man what to say to the gods when he meets them, how to answer their questions. Osiris is the judge who weighs the man's heart and considers if he be worthy to enter the realms of bliss. And the departed is instructed what to say. I have not played the hypocrite, he avers. I have not stolen, is another answer he must make. I have not lied. I have not committed adultery. I am no slayer of men. There are forty-two of these confessions in the Book of the Dead, and it is astounding how they resemble the Ten Commandments, upon which are based the Christian religion. In the replies just quoted may be traced three of the commandments, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt do no murder. Who can say after this whence the wisdom of the Bible sprang? The religion of the ancient Egyptians seems false to our eyes, but underlying it are many fine principles, and much of the truth that is eternal. Even in those remote times, however, there were people who were ever ready to take advantage of the grief of the relatives of the departed. A book of the dead was essential to the well-being of the departed, once he came into the presence of the gods, and the living would go to the scribe and acquire the finest copy of the book that lay within their means. The wonderfully painted books were only for the wealthy and the nobles, the poor people had to be satisfied with something that was much inferior, from which a great deal of the text was missing. The poorer classes were, of course, unable to read the sacred script, and would therefore be unaware that much of the text was missing, that the book was, in fact, so much abridged that they were acquiring a garbled version bearing little resemblance to the full book. They would have the body embalmed and then see the sacred book placed within reach of the mummy's hand, so that it could be consulted directly it was required. 
little knowing that the book upon which they relied was but an imitation of the genuine sacred book. In fact, in those days, it was more or less the same as it is today. The scribe scamped the work of the book that he was poorly paid for, and took more pains with the book for which he received a better price. Discoveries seem to indicate that although the people had faith in the book of the dead, the scribes themselves were inclined to be unbelievers. It is fairly evident that they had no compunction in defrauding the relatives, for when the scribe had sold a beautiful copy to place with one of the departed, he would very often slip in a blank papyrus along with the mummy and abstract the fine book, knowing full well that his fraud would never be found out. Probably he reasoned that it was rather a waste to place such a fine specimen of his work where it would be lost forever. It is quite likely that some of the scribes devoted a vast amount of time and skill to making a wonderful copy of the Book of the Dead that they could show to relatives to get their order, with the intention of substituting an inferior work or even a blank. Thus their one fine copy would be a source of income to them, and they would never part with it if they could possibly avoid it. Judging from the blanks and poor copies that had been recovered, there is little doubt that the Egyptians of old were quite as guilty of sharp practices as are some of the people today. End of chapter 5